Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Colby Smith is a comedian, he is a writer, and he is a podcaster. He is the host of a podcast called Honey Baby Sweetie Love. It is a dating podcast or a dating parody podcast. You'll hear more about that during our chat. Uh, Colby and I connected about six years ago through Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn, of course, is a nonprofit based here in Brooklyn, uh, which has plenty of fantastic shows and hosts. Um, Colby was one at one point. Uh, He is no longer. I am still a host on Radio Free Brooklyn. I have a show called The Vibe from Mike's House. It's on Saturday mornings at 6 a.m. I hope you listen to it. Anyway, uh, Colby and I began our tenures at Radio Free Brooklyn in 2016 at the same time we trained together, Um, and I've always been fond of Colby's upbeat spirit, and uh, I'm happy to have him on Detoxicity finally as a guest. Colby's upbeat spirit belies a common misconception people have, and I I hope that this podcast puts that to rest, and it's that people who are upbeat and positive don't also deal with some shit. Uh, maybe in times when they're not at their most happy and upbeat, maybe at times while they're happy and upbeat. But uh, the two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, Colby and I talk about everything from self-doubt, self-advocacy. It's really important to learn how to advocate for oneself, and he and I are both still kind of going through that process. We talk about how important it is to have a a good network of friends and how even in these enlightened times or more enlightened times, uh, it can still be difficult to connect on a deeper level, especially with other men. Uh, On a lighter note, Colby and I discuss Elton John fandom, Colby is a big fan of Elton John, and we talk about his 80s music a little bit. And uh, we also talk about comedy open mics and how it relates to Colby's sense of fashion. And apparently, open mics, you see some badly dressed people. That has not been my experience, or at least I haven't noticed. So let Colby school you on that, because he schooled me. Uh, It's a typically well-rounded conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, this is Colby Smith. I'm Colby Smith. I'm a comedian and writer. And I think a lot of people say that and they mean they write sketches and stuff. I have a a substack that I should be better about (laughs) maintaining where I review books and I have a first draft of a novel completed. So I'm leaning more toward the writer side of things lately than the comedian side. But that's my background and that's my spiel. What's your novel about? Mike, I'm so glad you asked. It's not represented anywhere yet, so I don't want this amazing idea being stolen by your listeners. But 
<laughs> it's a New York coming of age tale, which sounds very boring. But when you read it, you'll see that there's a fun little twist. I, I feel like the catcher in the rye kind of cornered the market on New York coming of age tales. All right. I'm scrapping the whole thing. Well, I'm looking forward to, to reading this when it is finally finished. How are you feeling about the idea overall? Are you like, okay, I'm powering through this. I'm ready to finish it. Or mm -hmm. are you like, I'm going to forget about this for six months and then be like, oh, shit, I'm actually writing a book. Well, right before the summer began, I printed out the first draft and had a big read through. So I'm at the revision stage now, which is going mostly well. It's taking longer than I would have liked, but I am enjoying you know, my experience of reading it back through was like, I could see it get better as it went along. So it's more just about taking that first half of it and making it kind of match the second half. So it's been an interesting process. Gotcha. So what spurred you to become a writer? Actually, I asked this question of every comedian that I have on the show, and there probably have been a dozen of them at this point. What possesses you to have the brainwave at some point in your life where you want to be like, I'm going to be funny and I'm going to tell jokes on stage? It's a good question. I think for me, I've just always been interested in it with both of these fields. I've always been a big reader and I've always been interested in comedy. And I think there was kind of a point where I thought they could kind of overlap a little bit more than they have I, like many people, discovered Mark Marin's podcast when he was coming out and then I was graduating high school. No, I was in college already by the time I found out about it, but he started, I guess, my senior year of high school. And he was an English major just like me and, and would talk about that stuff a lot during his monologues and with guests. So I, I was maybe under the false impression that comedians were interested in this kind of stuff by and large when in fact it's mostly just the least cultured most emotionally disturbed people <laughs> you could imagine who are populating the open mics of this fine city of ours mm. Mm. that's an interesting observation because i think of all of the comedians i like whether it's phoebe robinson or mm -hmm. josh gondelman or chris gethard and they have all written books yeah so I'm not seeing the mutual exclusivity that you're apparently seeing. Well, I don't think they are inherently opposed, but I do think that when you publish a book, the audience for it kind of assembles itself. Whereas if you are just a comedian in a lineup going to a room full of people in the back of a bar, the people who are there by and large, don't want to hear your little riff about how Hemingway killed himself, which is a joke I tried to make work for a long time and ended up giving up. But yeah, I think there is an anti-intellectualism, not to call mm. myself an intellectual, but I think the idea that being into books and art is an elite pastime is the thing I feel very actively opposed against. I think the things that connect to me about some of my favorite books are the same properties that I locate in my favorite comedians or my favorite music or, or any of the stuff like that. Like, there's a visceral quality to them instead of a heady intellectual quality that I would want to bring out in, in my own work. It's funny you mention sort of this bias against in intellectualism. I, I consider myself a fairly dumb person. I'm not an intellectual at all. But I remember around the time Bush number two got elected. So mm -hmm. 99, 2000, I guess, around that time period. Yeah. 
And that's when I first realized, I think, that lots of Americans don't like smart people. Intelligence is not something that's celebrated. And I grew up in a family where <laughs> there was a lot wrong, but one thing that was always prioritized was learning and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not sure what my question is, or even if it is a question, but it seems to have gotten worse over the years where yeah. it's just kind of like, if you think a lot about stuff, you're almost seen as the enemy. Yes. This is a thing that I talk about a lot in my personal discussions with other comedians, performers, particularly as it applies to stand-up, because there are right-wing podcasters making more money on Patreon every month than I've ever seen in my life. And I think it's probably a vocal minority, but it's what people think of when they think of stand-up is a red-faced, angry guy yelling about political correctness or something. And... People, I, I think by and large, really just want someone dumb like them. I think it's hard if you're like trying to be a little different. It's you can feel the crowd be less into what you're doing and more into the person who's just repeating the dumb opinions of the people who are assembled in the audience. And I think it exists on the left also. I mean, I don't know how often you go to Union Hall, but there are entire shows that are just... Somebody saying like, fuck the Supreme Court and everybody like and cheers like, and right. they're like, oh my God, this is my favorite comedian. And of course I agree with that opinion, but I also think that if you are going to be on a stage in front of people, you should be able to do something that they can't do. You should have this talent to work through these things and find laughter somewhere rather than just like repeating the things back to them that they already believe. I, I have a real disdain <laughs> for that kind of comedy just because we should all be working a little harder. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the anti-intellectualism has spread over to art. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that art is democratized in so many ways now, like I, I come from music and you can use technology to sound good. You can make all of your music on a computer. It's not like someone has to know how to play a saxophone or a guitar or drums or sing in church or take vocal lessons to be mm -hmm. good anymore. Yeah. And while I am certainly a fan of socialized most things, of democratized most things, I do think that it has disincentivized many of us from looking for actual artistic quality in art. For sure. For sure, because it feels like those values or those principles are not valued by and large in the culture anymore. I mean, on the comedy side, I think there is a resistance to people who get famous by going viral on TikTok and then get cast in a movie or they get on Saturday Night Live or whatever. Pete you Davidson. Know. Yeah. And I think it's a really complicated issue. So I'm definitely not saying that anyone who's famous on TikTok is not talented. On the reverse side, I don't think that anyone being honest can say that the only way to be funny is to do five open mics a night for 10 years or whatever. I think there's lots of different avenues. And I think that that's good, ultimately, that different sensibilities have different avenues for expressing themselves. But I do think, to your point, ideally, we would want to find some common ground where there is a respect for craft and the tangible, tactile nature of honing that craft in a very real way versus I have my little MIDI keyboard that I plug into Logic and then I just throw the saxophone sound on it and I say, this is the sax solo in my song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about you. So enough about my opinions. Uh, I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark without okay. knowing this for sure and say that you are not a New Yorker. No, no. I've been here for 10 years. but So you're a New Yorker. Yeah, I passed the threshold finally in, uh, in June. But Congrats. Thank you. I grew up in Western Maryland, very close to the West Virginia border. My mom's family, she's from West Virginia. They're all still in West Virginia. And it's probably truer to say I'm from West Virginia, culturally speaking, because that corner of Maryland that I'm from is so conservative and the rest of the state is, is pretty blue. You may be the first person that I've ever met from West Virginia. Yeah. And the impression that I get of West Virginians isn't the most, what am I trying to say here? I mean, there's the sense that West Virginians are bumpkins or, sure. or, or rednecks. How true is that? I mean, it's not not true. They're, it's a really under-resourced state and where that comes from is, is a complicated answer, but it's basically the story of the 20th century being that there was this industrial age that was then the economy shifted from that to the financial sector and that closed down mills and factories and towns across america basically happened to the entire state of west virginia through whether it was like through coal mining or the textile industry or or all of that stuff it's always been a victim of that post-industrial um age i guess the school system's underfunded there's a horrible opioid epidemic and really none of these are being addressed. I think it's hard to these places that are so remote and so disconnected from the rest of the country. It's no wonder these people are are overwhelmingly conservative politically just because that's their psychology. It's like mm -hmm. they've been left behind by most of the government and that does not breed a faith in government work. <laughs> so it's tricky. You know who Lauren Euler is? No. She's Euler. author uh, critic her big articles are for the london review of books but she is a year older than me and grew up in west virginia proper not just on the edges and wrote a novel last year called fake accounts that is really good i had her on my old radio free brooklyn show way back when and i think what she might say <laughs> is that it's a place she doesn't want to go back to i think it's hard for people who don't feel like they fit into that like I don't even know how to characterize it. It's not an easy place to be interested in cultural things. And I certainly found that in my hometown. It's not like you're ostracized necessarily. It's more that there's just no support for it. There's no structure in which to to find your people. And I have to look elsewhere, which is why like, I work with, in education and child care in various ways during the school year. And the proliferation of after-school writing programs or community theater, it's so awesome that it it's, exists in such a robust way here. But it, there is a part of me that resents it a little bit just because of the places that really need this are they don't the backwoods country towns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been thinking about this a little bit recently in terms of where people are from because so many quote-unquote famous people or artists or whatever you want to call them are from the big urban areas. And I think it's just because when you're in those small towns, you're not taught to dream big. You have no context for what 
that dream even is. You might as well say that you want to be an alien uh, <laughs> as opposed to working artist because no one knows anyone who does it. No one has a, a cousin in Hollywood or whatever. Sure. Like people, because in a lot of these places, they just kind of grow up there and they stay there and they have their family there. And that's why when you go to someone's house for Sunday dinner, it's like all these successive generations of people who have just stayed in the same town for a long time. I mean, it's not universal. Obviously, there are exceptions to what I'm talking about. But I think that's the prevailing culture and the expectation in a lot of these places is that you just stick around, whether it's explicitly stated or not. So is West Virginia a bunch of bumpkins? Yeah, but I mean, there's lots of beautiful leaves. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to leaves. We love leaves here. (laughs) What was your specific upbringing? Oh, my goodness. Well, my hometown is Cumberland, Maryland. It fits that description that I gave earlier of a failing post-industrial economy. And it was interesting growing up in the 90s where everyone around you had a memory of the town being a big deal. It was nicknamed the Queen City in the 50s, 60s because it was the second most populous city in Maryland behind Baltimore. Baltimore. Oh, wow. Uh, it had a thriving textile industry. There were three big tire plants that all competed with each other and everybody had their union jobs. And then they all, over the course of the 80s, just kind of closed because of the Reagan economy and and nothing has come to take its place. So it's that classic and meds thing now where you either worked at the college in the next town over or the community college taught at the high schools or you worked at the hospital and anybody else was just this smattering of real estate agent. People had their family shops and restaurants that were always on the verge of closing. I mean, it was a perfectly fine place to be a kid because there was so much space to run around. But as I got into high school, I kind of started to understand there's a generation missing. It was us and our parents and there was no one in between because they all had to go somewhere else to find work. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting kind of thing and just trying to figure out where you fit into all that. There was no easy answer. Were you always aware that you were getting out of there at some point? No, certainly not until my senior year did I really start to even think about that. I think by the time I was a senior in high school, I was eager to branch out a little bit. But up until then, I didn't even think about it. I remember getting my driver's license in my junior year and being a little more independent. And I think that's what changed, just wanting to be self-sufficient. Sure, sure. Yeah. And what was ultimately the impetus for you to come to New York? Or were there stops in between? There was one stop in between. So I went to the University of Maryland, right outside of DC for college. It's a big state school. It's a big 10 school. It's very red brick campus and football, basketball team kind of dominated really big Greek life culture. And then I went abroad I was in college for three years. I graduated a year early because I had all these AP credits. You're Uh, a brainiac, Colby. Yeah, well, I went abroad my second year there to Sheffield, England. It's about two hours north of London. And I think that was a seminal period, I guess, just because it was so different. Coming from such a sheltered upbringing, and then I had a couple friends from high school who also went to Maryland and pretty much just hung out with them my freshman year. And so to like to go on this grand adventure and just get a taste of, I guess there are two things about that year that I learned. One was about the PNC 
attitudes towards travel was very different. Both of mm-hmm. my parents really didn't enjoy traveling. The hassle of it would really get to them and the logistics and all the planning and all the driving, they would kind of ruin it for them. But there, everyone's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's just a couple hours on the train. Like, come on, we'll go to Edinburgh for the weekend or something. And that being not a big deal was huge for me in terms of understanding possibilities. And the other thing was their attitude toward writing and making art, which I was always interested in from a very early age. And it was just a thing that people did there. All this stuff that I thought was some big chore or some big exception was perfectly normal, perfectly legitimized. So for there to not be so much caught up in it uh, for them, I think were the two big things that I took away from that. So then coming back, knowing that I only had one year left, I, I really started to think about where I wanted to end up. And New York was, it was a, a dream because I was on the East Coast already, but then there was a publishing program that, at NYU that my guidance counselor told me about that I applied to and got in. So I, I got up through, there was just like a summer course. And then from there, met people and found an apartment and, and all of that. The rest so, is history. The rest is history, man. <laughs> so New York was always on the radar. It started being on my radar in college. We took a weekend trip up here, me and my brother and my mom, to see a concert, and then just spent the next day in the like village and stuff. And I was like, "Oh wait, oh, wait, it's Colby, just like the movies." I gotta ask, was it an Elton John concert? No, unfortunately, it wasn't. It was a comedy show. Stephen Merchant is. I know uh, that name for some reason. He co-created the British office and is like way less problematic oh. than Ricky Gervais. Uh, oh. <laughs> so I was a fan of his and he was doing one U.S. show and it was at Town Hall. And so we came up for that and Bill Hader was sitting in the row in front of us. And that was. Wow. Yeah. That is very cool. A New York got- weekend. Nice. So these episodes air out of order from when I record them. But the most recent person I spoke to grew up in Maine. Mm-hmm. And Maine is not a particularly diverse environment in a lot of different ways. And you grew up in West Virginia, which I would imagine is similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. So as a white, presumably heterosexual male, what was your level of culture shock when you got the fuck out of Maryland slash West Virginia? Or was there a culture shock? I don't think there was per se. I hear people a lot now, particularly post-pandemic, when everybody was kind of doing this, talk about their desire to move out of the city, upstate, one of those people, community, <laughs> and, and understand the impulse for sure. But I think my reaction to that is different just because I was like, yeah, but I've done that. I grew up in a little town and there there was not a lot to do like I think the part of the reason that I was into books and movies and stuff in high school was because it hinted that there was more to life than just seeing the same 10 people from your cross-country team for the rest of your days on this planet so um the stimulation of the city I don't feel done with yet just because I'm not to pay myself as some victim or whatever but I felt under stimulated I think living in that town and so the idea of leaving this all behind for a lawn or whatever. (laughs) It doesn't hold a lot of sway to me at this point. I get that. I I don't know what my expiration date on New York City is. Mm -hmm. I've also lived here a lot longer than you. I grew up here. Yeah. So there there is the sense that eh, I'm kind of done. And not to say that I would move to a rural environment necessarily, (laughs) but maybe a smaller city 
might yeah. might be the move. But no culture or very little culture shock is a bit surprising. Well, um, I think I just wanted it for so long. <laughs> I was eager to meet a bunch of people. And in my senior year, fell in with what small group of alt hipsters there were at Maryland's <laughs> campus. So kind of realizing I had things in common with these people that they kind of felt about like music and movies and stuff the same way I did and that they were just thinking beyond the immediate surroundings of that pretty classic college culture, I think was really refreshing. And then the other thing was that a lot of my good friends then could really talk, which is a quality that I really value in people just because there's so much pent up tense silences in my family. So being around some talkers kind of helped bring that side out of me as well. So by the time I got to New York and a couple of people... One friend grew up on Staten Island, and he was back here after we graduated, and so he was the only person I knew, so I fell in with him. But other friends of ours moved up after me, and so having that as foundation from which to branch out from, I think, was good for me in those early years as well. So I was perfectly happy to go to people's house parties and just talk to strangers for sure. a while. It was way more fun, because when you're in a small town, you don't have any strangers. Everybody's in everybody's business. Yeah. So you that process of like meeting someone, getting to know them, figuring out where your common ground is, if any exists at all. I had a lot of patience for it those first early years. I maybe have less so now just because you get sick of people disappointing you <laughs> or whatever. But certainly by the time I got here, I felt ready to mingle. Single and ready to mingle. <laughs> You'd mentioned Greek life at the school that you went to. You were not a frat boy, were you? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, I went to... One, one single frat party for, I want to say, 15 minutes. <laughs> I, I didn't picture you for that. Yeah. But stranger things have happened in this world. So right. I was like, yeah, I should ask that question. <laughs> now, going back to the communication piece. Yeah. You'd mentioned your family not necessarily being the most communicative. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think that was? And where did you figure out that that's not what you wanted to be? I mean, it took a long time. I th Where did it come from for them? I mean, I, I don't mean this in a derisive way, but they're backwoods country people. It's like emotional awareness is, is a fairly new concept, I think. Sure. I think these are pretty, not regressive cultures, but it's like with fashion. The stuff that's popular now reaches those communities five, ten years later. It's the same thing with stuff like this. I think there's a real stigma around that stuff. I think I had a little bit of a leg up. My mother's father had a really tough relationship with his father. And I had like read a lot of books about it. I, I don't think he ever went to therapy. I think that was probably a bridge too far for, for a West Virginia man who was born in the 1940s, but it wasn't unheard of to like give these things a name. And so I think some of that is in my, my, my blood or my DNA or whatever it is anyway. But it's like people are just used to burying their stuff deep down. I mean, my dad's a very like, whatever's going on, everything's great. He just doesn't have the emotional vocabulary to put that stuff into words in a constructive way. And again, it's not his fault. It's, it's just culturally it wasn't. Times. Exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, definitely for me, I was a sensitive boy and uh, it was difficult to kind of, I mean, this is getting maybe in a two on the nose way into the topic of your show, Mike, which is that it was not manly. <laughs> Yeah, to do this kind of stuff or yeah. to talk about yourself in these kinds of ways. So, no, it's not too on the nose at all. It's the topic of the show. Yeah. So uh, there's no shame in 
diving in head first to that stuff. Yeah. Well, aside from being a quote unquote sensitive boy, what was it that really moved the needle for you in terms of wanting to not be the type of person that your ancestors, predecessors, parents, grandparents were? Yeah, I definitely think that took a long time. I, without getting too much into it, certainly during my high school tenure, and I don't know if it was always like this or if I just got better at noticing it, but parents' marriage, always on the rocks. It was this kind of pendulum swing back and forth of like, they're talking to each other. Now they're not talking to each other again. And we have no idea what happened to to do all this stuff. And then it finally kind of came to a head. The the summer before I went to college, my mom moved out. So that was a traumatic thing. So I, I was dealing with a lot of that stuff at the time and then it was only later after I moved to New York and and was setting up my adult life that I got into therapy specifically to deal with all that stuff that I had never addressed and was starting to come up and I have younger siblings so it was a lot more real for them they had to stick around for the the real immediate fallout and I got to fuck off to college so it had some survivor's guilt about that and that was starting to affect my relationship with them so a roommate of mine who grew up here had been going to therapy. I got a couple names, and so I, I got into that. But it was really only through doing that that I feel like any of this really kind of hit home. I mean, the good friends that I made in college who were also up here afterwards, I, I think I think of one or two in particular were extremely emotionally intelligent, extremely self aware, and to bring up the vocabulary again, had a real way of expressing that stuff, and were just kind of tuned into themselves. So I think luckily they were able to model that a little bit for me. And so being around that and then kind of making the decision to do that work on myself were the things that brought a lot of those things home. And of course, those first couple of years you're in therapy, I feel like you learn a lifetime of insight into your family dynamic. There are still to this day, and I've been in therapy off and on for almost 15 years. Yeah. Uh, there's still bombs dropped in in like yeah. every session where i'm like oh shit you're <laughs> a wizard yeah i know i'm like oh my god <laughs> that's exactly it was it hard for you initially because i feel like when you tell people about your experiences seeing a therapist and then you make the suggestion that they see a therapist, the response is never like, oh yeah, they're like, oh, that's some pussy shit. What do I need to see a therapist for? Well, you kind of had modeled behavior to help you, but I would still imagine that those initial steps were not easy because you're undoing however many sure. years old you were at that point. You're still undoing all of yeah, these I was, years. Yeah, I was 25 okay. when I started. But yeah, it's true. And I remember saying to that roommate, I was like, my big fear was that I was going to go explain what was going on, and they were going to say, these are not real problems. Just splash some cold water on your face and stop whining. But- and I said that I kind of half-jokingly to my roommate, and he just goes, well, why don't you start by talking about that? <laughs> Wise advice. It was, yeah. It was, was what I needed to hear, definitely, at that moment. And I remember after the first time I went, just feeling like a million bucks afterwards, just to be able to speak all this stuff for an hour. I think she said maybe like two or three things <laughs> in that first session. But just unloading it all was incredibly validating. So, Yeah, usually I, for the first couple of sessions, it's like verbal diarrhea. 
Oh, we yeah. just like, and this happened, and this happened, and also this happened. I feel like the therapist's eyes are usually kind of rolling back, or they're scribbling furiously. <laughs> the whole time, um, yeah. Uh, Pages yeah. going by, flip, flip, flip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, this notebook is so heavy. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you still in therapy? Yes. Okay. I've, similar to you, I've gone through stretches of not doing it, but mostly because I... I couldn't afford it at various sure. stretches but yeah right now i'm in couples therapy uh somewhat regularly yeah with a a, a different therapist but that's good too it's all yeah, good I, I think everybody needs an impartial third party because mm-hmm. i mean i've never been in couples therapy before or family therapy i can't imagine the dynamic is much different i was just gonna say it's pretty much exactly the same yeah yeah but everyone needs an impartial outside party because mm-hmm. when you're in the shit it's really hard to be objective. It's true. Yeah. I tell people all the time, I'm really good at giving advice, but I never take my own advice because For sure. when the issue is someone else's issue, you can be objective. Mm-hmm. But if the issue involves you or if it is you, then you're like, well, pfft. I mean, that'll work for everybody else, but not me. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, my experience with this has mostly been extremely similar, if not exactly the same as when I started. I mean, I have a little bit of a leg up because it's not my first time in therapy ever, but it's just like you say this stuff out loud that you're thinking is such a huge deal in your mind. And then it's not like an easy solution, but it's not shocking anyone either. I really think that's about the validation for me. It's like so much of what I get out of. I'm not crazy. Yeah. Not that crazy. Right. So I guess in terms of personal growth out outside of therapy or even because of therapy, what are the super important things you've learned about yourself or the things that you are actively working on doing differently? Yeah, boy. The thing I think that I struggle with the most in terms of my couples therapy is speaking up for myself and not just like going with the flow a lot or just being like, yeah, like whatever, whatever's fine. I think I am like pretty easygoing as far as a lot of that stuff goes like interpersonally. But like if something comes up that I don't want to do, I, I, I struggle with voicing that in a way that is not panicked. And just because again, I have no real model for expressing disagreement in a healthy, <laughs> constructive way. Mm-hmm. That's not like, hostile or 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 confrontational or whatever yeah defensive so that's my big my big thing that i'm working on in the the in that respect and i think like it's not unrelated to the work i did individually for many years in just in terms of like i often felt growing up that there was not a lot of room for me to kind of like express myself just because the home dynamic was so volatile i didn't want to be the one introducing a a, a, a like a new a, a conflict or just like a new element that might upset the balance the, that had been struck. I'm so, feeling you hard here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so definitely, I mean, like I think when you got it, really, it's just like one or the other. It's like either your 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 parents hate each other and you are like, well, I hate everything too, and then you're like a, a rebel, or you do what me and all of my siblings, by the way, did, which is take this as like, well, I need to control everything about my life. (laughs) I need to like, get good grades, I need to like, be self reliant, like, I'm gonna follow all the rules just because someone being even just a little upset at me is too triggering. (laughs) So, So 
I think Man, dealing with listen. that, especially as you get older and you realize that you, it's it's up to you to carve out your own little space. And I think is is uh, that's the the conflict for me. There is just like wanting to do my own thing, but also not wanting anyone to disapprove of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are you are speaking my language for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In terms of relationships, uh, living in New York obviously gives you a much bigger palette mm-hmm. of people to have in your life on a regular basis. Do you, because in, in our, our pre-show questionnaire thing, you definitely brought up the idea of, of platonic friends as something that at least was of interest to you. Uh, and I, I do think that a lot of people, guys more so than women or non-binary people, have issues with relationships particularly with not exclusively but particularly with other guys Mm -hmm. that aren't surface that aren't like hey what's the score of the game or how's the fucking weather or do you see gas prices are going up blah 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 like -hmm. that kind of thing like the real forging close relationships and actually having conversations that might dig a little deeper is something that is still really really difficult for a lot of, again, people, but primarily dudes. And oh, yeah. Where do you see yourself in that whole? Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's true. Some of the most profound love I've felt in my life has been for close friends, for and close male friends. I mean, I I just think that like talking about the validation again, I get a lot out of. I'm thinking of like two people in particular who I just feel like I could say anything i could express anything to them and not only would they say like i understand they would say like i understand and also here's a time that i felt exactly the same way where i just feel completely safe to be myself and also people who bring out the sides of myself that i like the most there's a a writer named vivian gornick i don't know if you've heard of her she's a, a memoirist i guess is her stuff now but she's done a lot of like reporting on i think it was the 72 democratic convention maybe the 68 democratic convention but she wrote a memoir called the odd woman in the city that's like the best writing on friendship i've ever encountered Uh, she's in her 70s or something and she's friends with this old gay guy and they go on these walks and a lot of the book is about the the walks that they take and the things they talk about and and how time will go by in between where they're busy but then they always come back it's like right where they left off and she phrases it as like the sides of myself that come out when i'm around this person are the sides i like the best and i think that's so true of the best friends that i've had where there's something about them that draws out where I feel like a better version of myself when they're around than who I am alone. And I think that's really, really powerful. And I also think it's hard to find those people. I think this is maybe the lesson of my late 20s, early 30s, is how hard it is to connect to people. I don't know if I'm just extra critical or whatever, but I feel like that kind of friendship and ease that I'm talking about has come along. I mean, I've known two people who could do this in my entire life. And like I said, I am a social person. I love getting to talk to people and get to know them. But that level of just ease and trust, I think, is very hard to find if you're being honest with yourself. I agree with you. Um, But yeah, to kind of get back to your point about it being difficult for men to express this. I mean, both of these guys, I think the world is them. I feel incredibly close to them, but I can think of times where I've expressed 
kind of spoken to the depth of our bond and how much it means to me. And it's not that it's rebuffed. It's that they don't know how to talk about it. You get this like ascent, this validation, but it's not like we're going to live in this for a second. It's like, yeah, yeah, man. Like I feel the same way anyway. What were we talking about? So I think comfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that's totally true. And I I get it because to some extent it is still uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It used to be a lot more uncomfortable for me. I think therapy, knock wood, and possibly thank queerness on my part for making it a a little bit more comfortable being vocally affectionate with other men. But it is super difficult still in my mid-40s to express closeness because I think some of it is fear of rejection Mm -hmm. or, or fear of lack of reciprocity. Yeah. That's definitely a real thing. I was talking to a friend about this the day before yesterday. There's still a toxic dude inside me that I revert to old behaviors and old ways of thinking. For sure. For sure. And it's hard for me to say this stuff, too. Right. But I'm always just kind of like, man, I, I love hearing good things about myself. It doesn't matter who it is. If I said something you're like, let me know. I love hearing it. Yeah. I don't have trouble taking a compliment at all. Everybody wants things. positive affirmation, man. Everybody <laughs> needs it. So I got some lightning around questions to ask all you. Right. So we met via Radio Free Brooklyn. You had your show, which used to be mm-hmm. on super early on Sunday morning. And I actually feel like I asked you this question in person when I did your show. Why the hell were you getting up that early to do a radio show on a Sunday? I I used to ask myself that all the damn time. And you were chipper, too. I would come in and be like, well, fucking shit. I was really caffeinated. (laughs) (laughs) The studio, if you recall, was right down the street from Swallow Cafe. (laughs) And I would go there and I would just down a large coffee from them and then go right into broadcasting. And it worked. It was always funny to me because my show on Radio Free Brooklyn now is also super, super early, but I pre-record it, so it's not a huge Uh deal. If I had to get up and do a 6 a.m. show, I I would kill my... Yeah, yeah, that's not even feasible to me. On a regular basis, I'm not up that early. Yeah. Uh, And I'm also not a coffee drinker, so I wouldn't be able to to utilize Uh. your remedy. But yeah, it was Sunday morning, I would drag myself into Bushwick because I'm like, oh, I like Colby. He's a nice guy. I'll do a show. It's fun. And you would be super chipper. And I even think I am sort of a morning person. I've had friends who were like, you are insufferably cheerful. And you have my cheerful beat by like a factor of 10. Well, yeah, like I said, it was a controlled substance that was (laughs) spurring a lot of that. But also what you don't know is that I would do this and then go home and sleep all afternoon. (laughs) So it was coming out somewhere. Good to know. I got to ask about Elton John. Oh my God, I would love to talk about this. Because <laughs> I feel like you're a little younger demo for Elton John. Mm-hmm. Where did your appreciation for <laughs> Sir Elton John come from? It came from when I was a sophomore in high school, which was when you're primed for your classic rock phase. I had a group of friends in my like first period art class it was like me a guy's name was literally his name was tim records i shit you not like like records yeah yeah exactly that's such an awesome name tim records christina canarium and alexa something i don't know she was younger than us and we weren't as close with her but we would talk about bands and stuff and christina's family was really into ellen john and so she would like always put him on on car rides or something 
and gave me a greatest hits CD probably. And it was kind of stuck in there. And it was just fun to look on YouTube and at the performances, which I think is really the thing that got me into him is some of that live stuff because i think the production on especially his like 80s albums is really like sterile in a way that does not befit the liveliness of some of those songs i listen to the record version of sad songs say so much and i'm just like this sounds terrible it just like oh Colby. <laughs> but i love not that true. song i love that song and I, I saw him a couple weekends ago at metlife stadium and he played it live and people were dancing and there was a long piano solo and i was like this is great but I, it just sounds so different <laughs> than the, the the studio version yeah as someone who grew up in the 80s i i can objectively say that a lot of the production of music around that time is horribly mm-hmm. dated. Yeah. And Elton John was a prime offender. Yeah, definitely. That said, I still love Sad Songs Say So Much. Oh, it's such a great song. I love it. I love it. It's not as canon as I guess that's why they call it the blues, but it is that's still true. a great song. A great I like song. that song too. He played them both at the show and they were both great. Nice. Tell us about your podcast. Oh, it's called Honey Baby Sweetie Love. It's a parody of all the dating relationship podcasts. So we have comedians on and they improvise stories about their dating life that are fake and not real. (laughs) And that's a very funny show. And we have bonus episodes on Patreon. So people can check that out as well at patreon.com slash HBSL. Nice. What is something you still really feel like you need to work on about yourself? Oh boy, let's see. My joke answer, which is also real, is that my fashion game <laughs> needs to be upped considerably. But my <sighs> intrinsic answer is is a little bit of what I was saying earlier of just knowing when to speak up and say no and knowing when it's okay to go with the flow. I feel like I really have no internal compass for when it's appropriate to do either one. So I often find myself going with the flow when I wish I had spoken up and said I'd rather do this instead. And doesn't that build a shit ton of resentment? Tell you what, Mike, it sure does. (laughs) (laughs) That was a leading question, by the way. I knew what the answer was. You're speaking my language. I'm not great at saying no either. I've gotten a lot better at it. Mm -hmm. But if you continually do stuff you don't want to do, it builds up and then it comes out in gnarly ways. Yeah. And particularly if you want to keep and save relationships, sometimes you got to just roll out with the truth off the bat. Yeah. Yep. I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) But the fashion thing, to go back, you're not wearing Bermuda shorts with socks and sandals. No, I'm not. I'm not blowing it. But I also, I'll just buy a shirt and wear it for six years. (laughs) I mean, be happy that you're the same size as the shirts you were buying six years ago. I'm certainly not. What is your fashion goal? What is your aspiration? I don't even know if I have something specific. I'm going through a period of hating all my clothes right now, and I got to get some new ones that I like. And you work in education, so you're not balling. You're not rolling up to the school in designer gear. No. no. And it's been many years since I've been in a classroom, but most teachers don't have a particularly stylish way of dressing. Hey, when you teach at after schools, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) And the times that I've hung out with you in person, you're a simple dresser, but... It's not embarrassing. You're not yeah. embarrassed to be seen with me. Well, that's no. good. That's my fear. 
<laughs> I don't even know anybody that has such an awful sense of style that people would be embarrassed to be seen with them. Let me introduce you to a couple comedians I know. Really? Spill the tea, Colby. You don't have to name names. What is a... Uh... Oh, I mean, just, uh, just throw a rock at an open mic. mic and you'll find somebody who you're just like, yeah, not going to be at the bar the same time as that guy. Wow. Okay. Is it overdoing it or is it one of those things where it's No, it's like a free t-shirt guy. It's like this guy got his free t-shirt from the college bookstore at uh, orientation week and he's still wearing that out (laughs) to the bar. Oof. When you're in your thirties, not, not good. No, sir. Yeah. Cause it can go either way. And I was like, is this the dude with the OD cologne situation or (laughs) I, I don't know. The only other thing I would maybe say is Someone Saved My Life Tonight, my favorite Elton John song. <laughs> Why? I think it builds really beautifully, and it's a, a personal story for him, that because he doesn't write the lyrics, he doesn't right. always express, he's not like that kind of artist, so I think those glimpses where you kind of get into uh, his head a little bit are, are nice, and it's a beautiful ballad. I would agree. Actually, this is the last question. I thought about it earlier, and now I'm remembering it again. I brought up the fact that you are such a cheerful upbeat person is there a dark colby yeah he lives in my head all the time except for when i'm talking to other people are you comfortable letting dark colby out among trusted people certainly yes in the amount of shit i talk to friends that's where he rears his his ugly head i want to thank colby for stopping by i really appreciate you taking the time Colby's podcast is called Honey Baby Sweetie Love. You can find it wherever podcasts are made. Uh, There is also a Patreon, so make sure you support that. You can find Colby on Instagram at ColbAboutTown. That is C-O-L-B-A-B-O-U-T-T-O-W-N. You can also find him on Twitter at Colby J. Smith. And uh, he has a Substack as many of us are now starting to do. His Substack is called Actually Really Smart. You can find it at reallysmart.com really smart dot substack dot com uh thank you again colby really appreciate you taking the time to do this thank you for listening to detoxicity i hope you found this particular episode interesting and if you are new i hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes uh once again my name is mike joseph i am the host and producer of this show and uh there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission continue to support this podcast uh follow me on social media i am on instagram twitter and i'm on tiktok as detox pod guy Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace